California is doused with rain is more on the way. And what we're looking at for January, especially the next two weeks, we're looking at a lot of rain for California. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new law sheds light on years of police misconduct. If communities are going to trust the police departments that serve them, they need to feel confident that those police departments have the capability to police their own. Frustration grows over failures to change Trump-era immigration policies and what the loss of Ken Cinema means for the film community. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Last year ended with wet and stormy weather, and now it is following us into 2023. San Diego's most recent storm arrived late last night, bringing more rain and high winds to the region, with another storm forecasted to hit Thursday. Despite the ongoing gloomy skies, San Diego has been spared the worst of the recent wet weather. Northern California saw near-record amounts of rain last week and is bracing for more this week. And California Sierra snowpack levels have reached heights not seen in over a decade, with more snowfall expected as well. Joining me is Alex Tardy, Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in San Diego. Alex, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on again. So San Diego ended the year with a good deal of rain. What are our rainfall totals for 2022, and where do they land historically? Yeah, uh, that's correct. Uh, New Year's Eve was a soaker for the San Diego region and most of California. We're now right around average for the San Diego region, and parts of San Diego County are above average for what we call the water year, which starts on October 1 each year. So this is great news. To our north, it's been even wetter, and Central California is above average, some places uh, two times as much as they should be this time of year. So this is a remarkable start to the water year after, you know, we've been suffering almost three years of drought. The rain is continuing into 2023, as you mentioned. Can we expect more wet weather ahead of this week? Yeah, so December turned out to be wet, as we talked about. And what we're looking at for January, especially the next two weeks, we're looking at a lot of rain for California. So in San Diego area, we're talking in the next 10 days, another two or three inches of rain. For our mountains, you could double that uh, easily in San Diego County. It's going to come in pieces. 
The first uh, significant storm will be this Thursday where we'll see a lot of high wind and heavy rain, uh, even in the San Diego area on Thursday. And then it's going to come again over the weekend, Sunday, Monday. And we could be talking over the next 10 days, uh, four or five different types of storms, including the rain we're seeing today in San Diego. So it's all going to add up to significant rainfall in January and really put us in a situation where we're much above average for the water year, which is great news because that means we'll make progress on the drought. And in Northern California, keep in mind, this is the epicenter of the rain it's right into central California where they're just going to see tremendous amounts of rain on top of what they've already seen in December. San Francisco, for example, had five and a half inches of rain, which was near a record uh, just on New Year's Eve. So we're talking um, additional rainfall in that range over the next 10 days. Are we seeing the same weather system as Northern California is experiencing? Uh, yes, correct. Uh, so this weather system or this series of weather system extends all the way into the Western Pacific. So across the Central Pacific, north of Hawaii, and all the way into California. It's a weather pattern that is something we haven't seen since 2019. Now, will it add up to amounts that are more than 2018, 2019? That remains to be seen. Um, you mentioned the record snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. So the snow has been tremendous uh, with the storms in early December and the most recent storms, you know, feet of snow, much above average. Ultimately, what we need to see is the whole state being much above average. We're not there yet, but with this series of storms coming up, it's going to put us back to really where we should be. And hopefully we can continue that in February and March. Unfortunately, Though when this rain comes so intense and affects the entire state of California, the result can be flooding, which we saw on New Year's Eve, even in San Diego. So we want the rain, but it is a little bit too much at once. Mm. I mean, how much of an impact are these storms having on California's water supply and overall drought? I think we finally are making progress, significant progress, and it's showing up in the reservoirs. Some of the reservoirs in Sacramento area, for example, are receiving a tremendous amount of water, and they're now higher than they were this time last year. We got to keep that going. And it looks like based on the forecast, we will. And you touched on this a bit earlier, but do we know where Sierra Nevada snowpack levels are right now? Yeah, the snowpack, even in mid-December, was about 125% of average. Now it's uh, you know one and a half to two times higher than average for this time of the year. Uh, and especially when we're talking about snowpack above 7,000 feet. So the mountains in the Sierra Nevada, like Mammoth Mountain, for example, we're talking two times as much average snowpack. And that snowpack will sit there for a long time. So that's all good news. And we'll factor that into the water supply. And that's why, you know, when you start getting a series of storms like this, it's a management challenge. How much water to keep? How much uh, to let go? Because you also have to account for that snow sitting up above 7,000 feet. Our big reservoirs like Shasta and Oroville in California have a long ways to go, but we are rapidly making progress on uh, getting those back to where they should be. And I'm curious, uh, you know, with all this extreme weather we've seen recently, do you think that we should look at these as isolated weather events, or do you think this has any connection to climate change and something we might see more permanently? 
Yeah, that's a, a great question and one that we're still actively trying to understand, address, and ultimately answer. I think we should treat them as individual storms, um, like the New Year's Eve storm, or even the 85-degree weather we saw Christmas Day in San Diego. Individual storms, individual events. But what is a little bit concerning for sure is the three years of drought um, and then now a situation where we're pushing the envelope and talking about potential for additional flooding and excessive rainfall in, in much of California. You know, when you look at three, four, five years and you see those extremes, yeah, that, that could be related to some climate change, especially when you factor in our record hot summers, our incredible active fire season in 2020, 2021. I think if you look at them as a group or a collection of events, it's more a signal of some of the climate change we might be seeing rather than just one individual event, even if it's a spectacular event. Alex Tardy is Warning Coordination Meteorologist for the National Weather Service in San Diego. Alex, thanks for joining us and Happy New Year to you. Thanks so much. Uh, stay safe and dry. Uh, there will be a few breaks in the rain, but not a lot. Last year, KPBS detailed incidents of police discrimination and sexual harassment under a new state law, Senate Bill 16. But the San Diego Police Department hadn't released most of their sealed records until just last week. And while some hail the new law as a critical step towards local police reform, others worry about the effectiveness of a measure that would see police officers investigating fellow police. Joining me now with more is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Lindsay Winkley. Lindsay, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you start off by telling us about this bill? I mean, uh, this law is actually a year old, but it originally included a grace period for cases uh, that's just now going into effect. Senate Bill 16 was actually passed about a year ago, and what it does is it builds on another landmark bill, which is Senate Bill uh, 1421, and it makes a new batch of previously secret police records public. Uh, so the ones that are now um, releasable include when peace officers make unlawful arrests or searches, when they use unreasonable or excessive force, when they fail to intervene, when another officer uses unreasonable or excessive force, or if they practice a variety of um, forms of discrimination, not just against members of the public, but to their colleagues. So how does the San Diego Police Department compare to other agencies in terms of public transparency for cases of misconduct? Yeah, so the San Diego Police Department is one of the largest police agencies in the county. And so there are a lot more cases of misconduct when compared to other law enforcement agencies, but that's predominantly because of their size. The amount of records that were released recently uh, was large. It was more than 80. And some of these cases go back decades. You know, I think one of the interesting things about San Diego Police Department's release is that their retention period is actually a lot longer than most law enforcement agencies. They keep their files for their police officers their entire career plus three years. So some of these cases are pretty old and that's pretty unique in sort of the law enforcement landscape. And one of the instances of misconduct you report on involves a case of racial discrimination. Can you tell us more about this incident? 
Yeah. So this was one of the more recent incidents, actually. And we do sort of lead off with this incident. Um, essentially, a police sergeant was supervising a search of a business in the El Cerrito neighborhood. And an officer was putting a Latino woman in handcuffs. And he sort, sort of steps in front of a police dog during this process. And the sergeant, according to these police records, says, you're going to get bit. And then he follows that up with, but the dog only likes dark meat. It was actually another acting sergeant who reported that comment. And after an internal affairs investigation, it was found that that sergeant had uh, committed racial discrimination and he was disciplined. I mean, and, and this was just one incident that was recently made public. Can you give us an idea of what other instances of misconduct have come to light? Yeah, so uh, we still have a fair bit to move through. I mean, these investigations are lengthy. Many of them are dozens of pages. In total, there were thousands of pages of internal investigations. There are videos, there's audio. But from what we have gleaned so far, um, it's sort of all over the place. The one that I would say is we didn't see very often is the failure to intervene when another officer uses unreasonable or excessive force. However, that's mostly because those policies are actually relatively new for a lot of local police departments. We didn't really see those be codified until after um, the death of George Floyd. And why do reform advocates say laws like this are necessary? Yeah, so I think for decades, there has been a lot of conversation surrounding the importance of transparency. You know, if communities are going to trust the police departments that serve them, they need to feel confident that those police departments have the capability to police their own. And making these records public really is a step in the right direction as far as communicating to the public that, hey, we are we are watching ourselves. We are making sure that any allegations of misconduct are being investigated thoroughly. Um, however, as you likely know, there are some criticisms to this law and the previous landmark bill of SB 1421. And let's dig into some of those criticisms. I mean, there have also been concerns about conflicts of interest in internal investigations going forward. Why is that? Absolutely. So I think one of the primary criticisms that we hear with these laws is that these, especially with SB 16, none of these documents can be released unless a department itself finds that the allegation is sustained or true. Um, and a lot of people have an issue with that because they argue that police departments investigating themselves isn't necessarily the most unbiased thing. And now this goes so far as to say that even if some other body finds that an officer has committed this particular behavior, unless the department itself finds it, those files don't need to be released. So I'll give you an example. Um, say an officer is accused of committing discrimination. The police department does an investigation and finds, nope, that is not sustained. We're exonerating that officer. Then a court case gets filed and a judge, a jury, finds that that officer did in fact commit racial discrimination. Now, while the court records themselves would be public, the initial investigation would not be because that officer and its department did not sustain the initial allegation. And then some police officials have expressed their own concerns over the potential impacts of this new bill. What can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so some police unions did feel that releasing these records would show the public that they do know how to police themselves. However, there was a fair bit of concern that releasing these records would further complicate uh, the already challenging nature of attracting and retaining officers and deputies. Um, Obviously, local departments, like many departments across the nation, have been having a hard time uh, recruiting and retaining uh, people for the force. And they really feel like these rules will further complicate those efforts. Um, I think there's also some concerns that uh, a mistake will sort of haunt an officer for the rest of his or her career, um, depending on sort of the nature of it. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lindsay Winkley. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. 2022 was an eventful year for immigration policy. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis spoke with experts frustrated with President Joe Biden's inability to roll back some of the Trump-era immigration policies. The Trump administration spent four years enacting hardline immigration policies. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. They included building another border wall, restricting the U.S. asylum system, and threatening to end deferred action for childhood arrivals, which is known as DACA. Two years into the Biden administration, immigration advocates say that the rhetoric has changed from the Trump years, but the reality of what's actually going on in the border? Well, that's largely stayed the same. Blaine Bookie is a legal director at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. She says Trump policies like Title 42 have radically changed the political discourse around asylum. Title 42 is a public health order that allows border officials to turn back asylum seekers without a court hearing. You know, they have completely flipped our understanding of asylum. They have made it seem like access to asylum at our border is an aberration. When actually it's these policies, these new policies only from the last few years that are the aberration. You know, for 40 years before that, people were able to come to the border and seek asylum. While activists continue to decry Biden's approach to Title 42 and other immigration policies, conservatives slam him for being too soft on border security. Advocates say that it isn't just asylum policies that have carried over from the Trump years. DACA is still under threat, and the border wall continues to be expanded. Aaron Reichland Melnick is the policy director for the American Immigration Council. He is among many who are frustrated with the fact that DACA is still frozen in place. The Obama-era program provides protections to undocumented immigrants who came here as minors. 
no new DACA applications have been processed since 2018 when the Trump administration sought to end the program. Despite the Democrat control of the White House and Congress, nothing has changed when it comes to DACA. As of today, dreamers and other undocumented youth have just as much insecurity in their lives as they did at the beginning of the year. Pedro Rios is the director of the U.S.-Mexico border program at the American Friends Service Committee. He says that advocates here remain frustrated over what they consider broken campaign promises. A particular sore spot for Rios is that the Border Patrol continues to block access to Friendship Park, which is located along the border just south of Imperial Beach. This is one of the only places along the Mexico border where people from either side can spend time together. We still don't have access to the area that is known as the enforcement zone. This is the area between the primary and the secondary border barriers. And again, the rationale for not having access uh, doesn't necessarily make sense. On the Mexican side of the border, people who work with migrants also say that not much has changed in the last year. They point out racial inequities in border enforcement. Title 42 gives border officials the discretion to grant exemptions on a case-by-case basis, but Ukrainian refugees and other white European migrants have had easier access to those exemptions than black and brown migrants from Latin America. So says Erika Pineiro, the executive director of Al Otro Lado, the LA-based legal rights organization that's helped hundreds of migrants in Mexico. I think, by and large, it's Black and Indigenous migrants who are left out. So it's not a fair process now, and I don't see the administration making plans to make it a fair process even after the end of Title 42. However, while advocates are not optimistic that 2023 will be much different than 2022, they see some rays of hope. They point to a recent poll showing that the majority of Democrats and Republicans support offering asylum to people fleeing their homes. Again, here's Bookie from the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. You know, Americans see through that. Um, You know, I think the example of the Ukrainians just helped to highlight for, you know, Americans that, you know, what is the purpose of the U.S. asylum system? And why do people need to come to our borders sometimes in order to access that protection? She says public opinion polling around DACA shows a similar dynamic. She believes it's possible that the policy might catch up to public opinion. Regardless... We're likely in for another eventful year at the border. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. After having a baby, mothers are barraged with pressures to return to their pre-pregnancy lives and bodies. As KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, it can take a toll on both mental and physical health during one of the most vulnerable periods of life. Soon after Megan Gearhart gave birth in 2016, acquaintances were quick to congratulate her on her appearance. I looked really good postpartum, like my baby weight did not stick around. She may have looked like she'd snapped back, but physically and emotionally, she was suffering. During the birth, Gearhart, who lives in Pomona, experienced an obstetric fistula, a hole torn between her anus and vagina. Her rectal sphincter was also completely severed. As a result, she couldn't control her bowel movements. Inwardly, I feel gross and I smell all the time and I don't want to leave the house and I'm fairly ashamed. For insurance reasons, Gearhart had to wait for corrective surgery. She spent months raising a newborn while also struggling with incontinence. I cried a lot during those seven months. I was really happy to have this baby, but it was really, it was really hard to not feel normal. 
She didn't want to tell strangers about her condition, but felt pressured to hang out with other new moms. And none of the doctors who knew what she was going through asked about her mental health. I had this schism where I was outwardly, everything looks fine. And I have this baby that I've wanted for years, but inwardly, I'm really a mess. Scroll through Instagram and TikTok, and you'll see the immense pressure on postpartum women to look and act like pregnancy and birth never happened. It's known as snapback. The wellness being projected postpartum in this snapback framework, it's really about appearance. It's very much geared towards what you can post. That's Priya Batra. She's an OBGYN in L.A. She says the pressure to lose weight quickly can make birth injuries worse and healing harder. Both the strenuous exercise and the diet questions I get really are focused on quick weight loss um, and changes in the physical appearance. And they really don't align with the kind of nutrition you're looking for to support things like breastfeeding, to support things like healing after potentially a surgery. She emphasizes better support for services like home visiting programs and doulas. These great things that exist to support that role transition postpartum, because I think as a society, we ask you to snap back into every other piece of your life. The burden of returning to work, for example, coupled with comments from family or friends about a new mother's appearance can be a toxic mix. A lot of it comes down to like this idea of shame, that if you're struggling, then it means that you're not doing it well enough. Angela Incalingo Rodriguez studies weight stigma both during and after pregnancy. She's an assistant professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. She's found it can cause concerning consequences. Things like increased risk for postpartum depression, less comfort, less intention to seek help with breastfeeding behavior. It was ironically related to more weight gain over the pregnancy and then more weight retention after having the baby. Cutting out social media is almost impossible, but dialing it back could help. We don't yet know what type of content is actually empowering, actually uplifting, actually supportive, versus which types of content just perpetuate this cycle of creating unrealistic expectations and making you feel comparatively less. Turning away from social media helped Megan Gearhart. Instead of Instagram, she read Korean comics during late night feedings. She also limited her Google searches related to her fistula and surgery. That's going to calm me down a little bit and put me into more of a soothing state of mind than like a hyper state of mind. Six years after her corrective surgery, her condition has improved. She still has occasional leaks and carries a spare pair of underwear with her wherever she goes. I had a baby, I had a fistula, and I healed. And at the end of it, I was just a different person. Gearhart says speaking about her related depression and hearing from other women with fistulas would have helped. And to learn that over time, her body would recover. It would just be different. I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. A recent study from the Rady School of Management finds when it comes to politics, Americans would rather hurt the cause they believe in than support the one they don't. So why is that? I spoke with Ariel Friedman, co-author and Ph.D. candidate in behavioral marketing at the Rady School of Management. I started by asking for his key takeaways. Yeah, so we found that consistently across those three different causes, people would rather harm their own side than help the opposing side. And we found it across those three causes and across both people on both sides of each cause. So Democrats and Republicans, pro-life, pro-choice, they both behaved similarly. They would both rather subtract funding and hurt their side 
then add any kind of even a small amount of funding to the opposing side. Interesting and sad. Um, what reasons <laughs> do people offer in terms of why they're willing to harm their own party and, and self-interest even uh, to avoid support of their opposing party? Yeah, so that's a very fascinating question and one that kind of motivated a lot of this research. We believe that one of the drivers of people's decision making in this in these kinds of contexts is their identity and how their choices impact their identity and kind of to put it in a nutshell we find that it's it's more harmful to one's identity to help the other side than to harm their own side hmm. i mean aside from political parties did your findings vary at all among demographics Interestingly, we, we looked at that and we didn't find changes across various demographics. We also looked um, at other countries as well. So we looked at the UK, for example, and found a similar pattern of results there as well. Hmm. And so, you know, I mean, it sounds like compromise and cooperation are difficult for Americans these days. Um, what are the psychological barriers to that? So that, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and we think that this work kind of contributes to those psychological barriers um, people, you know, just don't seem to want to make any concessions to an opposing side. And that really harms uh, cooperation. And, and you, you can imagine that this might have big implications for, uh, you know, in, in the political sphere, for example. And tell me more about the study that you did. How did you uh, survey people? So what we did is in an experiment, we asked participants or we told participants that we'd be making two donations, one to each side of the cause. So for example, a donation to Republicans and a donation to Democrats. And we simply asked people, you have a choice to alter these donation amounts. Would you rather add a dollar to the opposing side or subtract a dollar from your side? And we found that about 70% of participants, when they were asked this question, preferred to subtract a dollar from their side rather than add a dollar to the opposing side. What did you find is key to bringing Americans together? One important thing that we found can help to bring people together is to establish kind of norms of helping the other side. So when if people knew, for example, that a lot of others in their group, when faced with this decision, actually chose to help the other side, then people kind of copied that. When, when the norm was established to kind of cooperate and, and, you know, kind of help the other side, people followed that norm. And, and we think that, you know, even in high stakes situations, like in politics, having perhaps, say, prominent politicians cooperating and, and kind of coming together and, and perhaps ceding gains to the other side in the spirit of cooperation, that can help others kind of follow that example. And when it comes to uh, political ideologies, uh, I know you've said you want to expand your research to study people in other countries and cultures. Um, can you talk about why that's important? The U.S. is, um, there are many accounts that suggest that kind of polarization in the U.S. is, is, is at kind of a, an all-time high. And so we thought it could be interesting to look at other countries where um, polarization is, is not as stark, for example, and see whether we find a, a similar pattern there or if this is kind of, you know, unique to perhaps U.S. or Western countries. What's the consequence, you think, of the U.S. being so divided? I think that the divisiveness that we have in the U.S. certainly makes it very difficult for sides to come together um, and, and to, to cede any gains to the other side. And in your study, you found some inconsistencies with prior theories on how people make decisions in group settings. What did you find? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, 
kind of two prominent prior theories on, on how people make decisions in such settings. One of them is, is kind of re related to in-group love and shows that people are kind of driven by in-group love rather than out-group hate when making decisions. And our findings seem to be inconsistent with that. I mean, if, if you're really driven by in-group love, why would you hurt your own side when, when you have the opportunity not to? Um, another kind of prominent theory is kind of related to in-group favoritism, and it suggests that people want to create the most favorable relative comparison between their group and the other group. Um, and our findings are, again, inconsistent with that theory, since harming your own side actually creates a worse relative comparison between your group and the other group. Um, and so, you know, instead, we offer a theory that's related to identity and how identity plays a role in these decisions and can trump, you know, uh, these, these other considerations. You can find this study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I've been speaking with Ariel Friedman, joint author and a PhD candidate in behavioral marketing at the Rady School of Management. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The Ken Cinema has been a beloved landmark for San Diego filmgoers since the 1940s. But for the past two years, it's been vacant, and now the building has been sold. Ethan Van Thelio is executive director of the Media Arts Center and attempted to lease and then buy the building during its closure. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Van Thelio about what the loss of the Ken means for the film community and how he's trying to fill the gap. Ethan, I have just received news that the Ken Cinema has been sold and is most likely not going to remain a theater. So as somebody in the arts community, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's uh, really honestly a sad day. You know, it's been closed for a few years during the pandemic, pre-pandemic. And so we've known it's been shuttered for many years. But I think there was that kind of hope that after the pandemic, you know, somebody would be able to purchase it and bring back movies to that wonderful cinema that we've uh, really celebrated and enjoyed for so many years. Now, as somebody who runs the San Diego Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema, you actually had an interest in trying to get the lease or to buy the Ken Cinema, and you went to visit it back in August. Yeah, you know, so, you know, for those who we run the Digital Gym Cinema, but we wanted to, hey, maybe look at another uh, venue uh, to screen independent foreign films. So even, you know, as soon as it closed uh, a few years ago, we we tried and first we tried to maybe just lease it, you know, just just rent it to us. But uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, the property manager at the time, which just was not budging in terms of like even giving us the opportunity to rent it. Cause, and then at some point, then, I, then the pandemic really hit us. And so we were kind of in survival mode in terms of a nonprofit organization, just trying to go to vir the virtual world right but then eventually i guess i guess about a year and a half ago or something like that it seems start things started getting better for us as a nonprofit. people started going back to in-person programs that we started doing our latino festival and then so yeah i, I reconnected uh with the property manager and then eventually this past summer we found out that the the, the Cinema was going to be officially you know up for sale you know uh, and so we could actually go inside so we did a a tour of the space looked at looked at it all and i 
again, I was surprised because I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually the seats are still there. You know, the screen is still there. There's even speakers on the wall. I actually got excited and I was like, oh, we could turn this around pretty quickly. Yeah, a little, a little bit of maybe new paint, new carpet. <laughs> and we would have had a, a, a cinema running uh, really quickly. Um, but, you know, just uh, once again, the challenges of... Uh, you know, purchasing a building like that at that point, I think it was over $5 million to purchase the whole corner, which included the restaurants. And, uh, you know, I had uh, looked into potential loans and I actually, you know, received some favorable responses from people who would actually give us the money to loan the space. But I, you know, I, I just talked to other nonprofit leaders and other organizations and try to get people excited about the idea of us purchasing the Ken Cinema. But when you look at a loan, you know, and you start looking at the current state of movie going audiences and, and, and the business model, uh, you know, it seemed to be a challenge because, yeah, we could uh, potentially bring in revenue from the, the leases of the restaurants that were connected to the, the movie theater. But, you know, what what was the movie theater going to actually make every week in terms of box office? And, you know, if you would have asked me this question three to four years ago, I would have told you I would have been easily able to look at our current budget for the digital gym cinema and tell you what we what we bring in but uh you know in this post pandemic world that we live in the everything's changed so drastically everyone is so used to seeing the movies on and their uh, their couches and and hulu and amazon and netflix and so just trying to get a good you know budget good numbers to you know for the loan documents uh to tell everyone yeah we can do it and so i think i think the the monthly payment was going to be about $30,000 and so just trying to figure that how was i going to uh, pay that monthly th thirty thousand uh, dollars proved to be a challenge in terms of the independent film side and the and the movie going side and yeah maybe if we had special events live music and yes if we put a you know half a million dollars into redeveloping the place and turn it into restaurant slash cinema I mean I'm, I'm sure there's lots of ideas but uh, again we're living in a world where post pandemic world that it's uh, very difficult to to kind of see. Who will go to see uh, movies again in person? Uh, and it, so it's, it's, it's a challenge. And really, in the San Diego urban area, we don't have a, a single screen independent movie theater anymore. And so it's uh, for those of us who have been around for many years, uh, we've lost many great cinemas over the years. And what does it mean to the film community to lose a screen like the Ken Cinema? Well, again, the cinema for me, uh, you know, being being here, you know, when I first came to San Diego, uh, 30 plus years ago, uh, it was that space where you could, you know, get their calendar and check out all the independent films and foreign films that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see, you know, especially at that time. And, I, you know, I would just love to read, you know, the landmark theaters when they owned it. They used to have like the movie reviews. And so you would read like the the New York Times movie review behind the flyer of the movie. And that, that it seems special. It seemed really unique. And it's a place not only for general audiences, to celebrate an independent cinema, to see uh, foreign cinema, cinema in different languages that they would otherwise wouldn't see, but also the young filmmakers of the world. You know, all the film students here in, in the region just going there on a regular basis and learning from the, from the greats like Kurosawa or whoever it might be. And so losing that opportunity to see great independent cinema in a, a, a public space, a community space, 
where you can watch the movie and then afterwards you talk about the movie. Um, and again, you know, the, the streaming services are wonderful. There's so many great opportunities. There's so much content out there. But there's something special about seeing it in a big movie theater, big screen, surround sound, and then being with other, uh, you know, lovers of cinema talking about film. You can't replace that. And so we believe as a nonprofit that we're going to continue fighting for that. You know, we we have the Digital Gym Cinema in downtown San Diego now, Park and Market, beautiful new space. We're going to keep on fighting for this idea that cinema should be seen on the big screen and, and, and in person and together. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Ethan Van Thilio, Executive Director of the Media Arts Center. India consistently produces about twice as many films as the U.S. American audiences are starting to embrace those films thanks to streaming services such as Netflix and Prime that carry hundreds of titles. Back in May of last year, the film RRR was in the top 10 most watched Netflix movies, and it's now nominated for two Golden Globe Awards and shortlisted for an Oscar. And San Diegans can catch it on the big screen this week at the Digital Gem Cinema. KPBS Cinema Junkie host Beth Accomando and Yazdi Patavala, co-host of the podcast Movie Wallace, discusses the success of RRR and how well it represents Indian film with Andrew Bowen. Here's that interview. So RRR is India's most expensive movie to date, and it's one of its highest grossing. Beth, tell us what this film is about. All right, it's hard to condense it, but RRR is inspired by a pair of historical figures, but it delivers more fantasy than facts as it gives us this bromance between two men who seem to be fighting on opposite sides. One is a villager rebelling against his British colonizers, while the other is working for them. So it's a three-hour saga, which is typical for Indian films, and it features ridiculously gorgeous stars, crazy action set pieces, an evil empire, melodrama to swoon over, and of course, musical numbers like this one that are absolutely irresistible. And this one is kind of a dance-off. Not salsa, not flamenco, my brother. Do you know? Desi Natch. What's Desi Natch? And I actually watched this video yesterday. It is very, very catchy. I cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> so, uh, Yazdi, although this is a musical and it's from India, it is not considered Bollywood. So why is that? So Indian cinema is frequently associated with Bollywood films, which are made in Hindi, the national language of the country. Bollywood refers to films made in studios in Bombay, which is now Mumbai. However, from the very beginning, India has had a rich history of local cinema made in other parts of the country. Most recently, films made in South India have been gaining national attention because some of those films are just better films, period. Films made in the regional South Indian language of Telugu are particularly on the rise and getting a lot of attention. And those films are called Tollywood films. And RRR is a great example of that. So Tollywood versus Bollywood, good to know. Beth, why do you think this film, RRR, has had such a great crossover success? 
Well, the filmmaker, S.S. Rajamuli, knows how to work the audience. He knows how to make everything feel epic in ways that play off of the kind of Bollywood traditions. And he mixes that in with kind of Indian mythology and delivers everything with kind of an affectionate wink to the audience, kind of saying that he knows this is over the top. He knows this is exaggerated, but he knows it's going to suck us in and make us like swoon and beg for more. So he's dialing it up not just to 11, but to like a thousand. I mean, there's a torture scene where the guy breaks out into song and then in the next scene is fine. So it's just relentlessly and joyously over the top. And it's really easy to get completely sucked in by it. And in the West, sometimes we call that camp. (laughs) Yazdi, can you explain or what do you make of this film's success? And do you think it represents the best of Indian cinema today? So there are many reasons for the film's success. Its two male leads are sons of ruling acting dynasties in South India. So having them both co-lead a large budget blockbuster epic such as this almost guarantees maximal attendance in local theaters. But what's interesting are the other reasons for the remarkably unexpected huge international following for this film. There are several reasons. This is maximalist cinema at its most maximal. There is no nuance here. There are no shades of gray. The bad guys are evil and extreme, and the good guys are downright gods. And there's something very elemental and primal about how this story is constructed. And there is an open-armed embrace of sentimentality that is uncommon in cinema these days. So I think both of these things speaks to the universal uptake for the film. And so in retrospect, this is not so much of a surprise. And add to that incredible action scenes and a soundtrack that's working really hard over time, all the time, through all of the three-hour running time. And you have, you know, something that is pretty pretty remarkable. So Beth, is RRR just mindless pop entertainment? Or do you think there's something else going on underneath it? Well, you know, I always find that pop culture tells us a lot about what's going on in our country or whatever country the film comes from. So, you know, think about actors like John Wayne and on up through Clint Eastwood and Chuck Norris and Sylvester Stallone. They make fun, popular action films. But, you know, they also say something about a particular kind of American individualism and testosterone. So you can go in and just enjoy them as fun action movies, but you can also see how they're meant to stir a certain kind of patriotism or a certain way of thinking. So RRR gives us people fighting against an evil, very evil empire. And of course we cheer them on and we want to see them win. But, you know, there's also this rousing sense of unquestioning nationalism that's going on as well. So I think the thing to think about is that Indian films are as prone to tropes and stereotypes as Hollywood is. But, you know, when they're wrapped in this foreign culture, we may not pick up on them quite as readily. Yazdi, how about you? Do you see any political undercurrents in RRR that an American viewer might miss? It's hard to miss it, Andrew. And like <laughs> okay. like Beth said, the reason the film has raised more than a few eyebrows is this naked abandon with which it embraces a very particular kind of patriotism. It's a little bit hollow, but the drum beating doesn't end. And this kind of patriotism in this film at least goes further and often gleefully tips into a nationalist fervor. And I think it's relevant because the current reigning political party in India has long been accused 
of weaponizing nationalistic rhetoric to exalt Hinduism, often to the detriment of people of other faiths that are living in India. And when the last half hour of this film sees its heroes actually take on what are unmistakable incarnations of the Hindu gods, Rama and Bhima, then you got to scratch your head about the film's agenda. Is this thinly veiled nationalistic propaganda or innocent entertainment? You get to decide when you watch it. Go! That was Yazdi Patavala, co-host of the podcast Movie Wallace and KPBS Cinema Junkie host Beth Accomando, speaking with KPBS's Andrew Bowen last fall. RRR is playing this week at the Digital Gem Cinema. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.